Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today's episode is the second in a three-week series of interviews with four African-American alumni about their experience with racism and struggle for racial justice in life and ministry. We hope you were able to listen to last week's episode in which these friends shared their stories of growing up with racial injustice. In today's conversation, we'll focus on the experience of racial prejudice in our guests' adult lives. And in the wake of the recent killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and many others. We know that for some of you, this episode will be difficult to hear. The experiences we'll talk about are painful and dispiriting. But we need to listen and learn as we do our very best to combat the sins of racism and work at reconciliation in our churches and our world. Kristen, will you please introduce today's guests? Welcome back to the special series on the Beeson Podcast. Last week, I had the privilege of introducing each of our four panelists, and I encourage you to go back to that episode and learn more about each of them. Today, I want to remind you who we have on the show. We have four outstanding Beeson alumni, all who serve as pastors. Our first guest is the Reverend Dr. Patricia Outlaw, who is the pastor of Oak Grove Amy Church in Florence, Alabama. She graduated from our D-Men program in 2002 and taught as an associate professor of divinity at Beeson from 2001 to 2015. Our second guest is the Reverend Dr. Mary Moss, who is the senior pastor of St. Alma Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She also earned her Doctor of Ministry degree from Beeson in 2009. Our third guest is the Reverend Dr. Thomas Beavers, who is the senior pastor of New Rising Star Missionary Baptist Church in the Eastlake community in Birmingham, Alabama. He graduated from Beeson with a MDiv degree and later a DMIN degree in 2007 and 2013, respectively. And our last guest is the Reverend Dr. Calvin Bell, who is the senior pastor of Bethel Baptist Church in Bessemer, Alabama. He earned his MDiv and DMIN degrees from Beeson in 2011 and 2017, respectively. Welcome back, everyone, to the Beeson Podcast. We ended the last podcast talking about your childhood, particularly about what your loved ones and elders taught you about racism, as well as how racism affected your childhood. So on this episode, we want to move into talking about racism as it has affected you as adults. How have racial insensitivity, racism, racial injustice affected you as adults? How do you respond when you encounter racism in others? And another question that comes to mind is now that you are adults, what are you teaching the younger generations about racism and how to confront racism as children? Dr. Outlaw, let's start with you. I am the oldest adult in the room. (laughs) So I've been an adult a long time. And I remember as I graduated from high school and uh, 
1963, we were part of a social justice movement in the Catholic Church. Remember a group of us going to Washington, D.C. to participate in the March on Washington in, in 1963 that Martin Luther King gave his historic I Have a Dream speech. So I had been accustomed to participating in marches in order to de- desegregate places like Gwen Oak Park in Baltimore City that was segregated. And then I did a tour of uh, five years in the convent. In the convent, it was a 99% African-American group of women living together under the banner of the Oblate Sisters of Providence. One of the reasons that I didn't go to an integrated religious order because of discrimination in in the church, even with respect to trying to get into a religious community, uh, there was discrimination. There was separation between the black Catholic church, quote unquote, the white Catholic church, Needless to say, uh, there's always been this segregation that was in the, always in the backdrop and in the forefront. And I had a progressive mother who would remind me that the way out of some of the predicaments that we found ourselves in was education. So she was intent on my getting a quality education and getting out of a sand town. As I grew older, I would participate in marches and go to conferences and advocate on behalf of my people and learn my history, knowing that we were brought here, my ancestors were brought here against our will, and even sometimes making other people uncomfortable with some of the statements. But the fact of the matter is the Constitution was never written with black people in mind. It was written with white males in mind. And so we had no freedoms. We were brought here as slaves. When I was able to get my own driver's license and get my what I call my vanity tag, I got uh, the, the tag number Outlaw 3 because my father's last name, even though it's his slave master's last name, was Outlaw. And I have a cousin who's sort of the genealogist in the family informed me that my grandfather, Joseph Outlaw, was the first generation out from slavery. He married Eliza McCoy. Eliza McCoy had inherited some land, and so that land became part of the Outlaw family. So when I had the opportunity to get a license tag, I got Outlaw 3 because that was signaled that I was third generation out from slavery. On one job I had in Baltimore City, I remember a supervisor saying to me in the cafeteria, uh, how is it that I could afford to drive the kind of car I was driving? Well, the full-time job and a part-time job, because I always saw that as an opportunity in my family on the outlaw side. We were encouraged to buy real estate and to invest, and so could well afford the car that I was driving. But the assumption was, because I was driving a nice foreign car, that I had to be doing something illegal in order to be able to afford the kind of car I was driving. And so I always found myself overachieving relative to some of my peers. When I was working on my doctorate at, at the University of Maryland, I had peers who would say to me they wished that they had had the same kind of energy that I had. But I was determined I was going to excel and that I wasn't going to go to jail because a lot of people in my community, a lot of my peers were disappearing. <laughs> they were going to jail for little or nothing. And I knew that if I didn't move in a d- different direction, I could also end up in the same predicament. I had one encounter when I was in uh, elementary school because uh, I was big for my age and went down to the juvenile master who was presented there for fighting. And he said, if I came down there again, they would have to send me away somewhere. Well, I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going back down there again because I didn't want to have to deal with being incarcerated somewhere. How do you respond when you encounter racism today? I call a spade a spade. I try to be polite, but I acknowledge the, the racism in the room. 
I try to encourage people to know their history and to acknowledge uh, the fact that racism still exists. Said that the Constitution was never written with us in mind. It was only written with white males in, in mind. It wasn't even written with white women in mind. My ancestors were slaves when the Constitution was written. My ancestors were not free. Even when the Star Spangled Banner was written, it was not written with us in mind. It was written with white males in mind. If you know the history of the Star Spangled Banner and look at the lyrics, you will discover that we were not included. Even the junior high school I went to, I didn't know that when I went there, but I was sent there because it was an accelerated junior high school. But my junior high was named Robert E. Lee Junior High School. Coming south, I had my reservations about coming to Alabama. And I said to a classmate when I was in the men program, he wanted me to come. I was the only female with nine other men, white men, and one a guy from India, and um, my classmate wanted me to come home and meet his family. And as we were driving south, on 65 South, going through these back roads to get to his house, meet his family, I said, are you sure it's okay for me to be riding through these roads with you? I was very much aware of where I was, who I was with. I was with a white male who happened to be a Baptist brother. And I'm going down these roads in Alabama, you know, the same place where they bombed 16th Street Baptist Church in my lifetime. So I have all those kinds of reservations that I have to deal with. And even to this day, it's still real. How do you address racism with your students? I told my students the first year I started teaching here, which I've taught in other places, I said, if this school wanted another white person, white male teacher, they would have hired that person. So don't expect me to walk like, talk like, act like someone else, because I'm not. I'm not coming from the same tradition. Um, I have a different history. I'm real clear. I try to be nice, but I'm not into people pleasing. Thank you, Dr. Outlaw. Dr. Bell, what has been your experience as an adult? And so as I think about uh, how racism has uh, affected me as an adult, I, I, I think about several stories. I'll rewind to 1998. I, I was working at Kirkland Clinic at UAB, and I was actually the first African-American maintenance mechanic to, to work in Kirkland Clinic. And I remember uh, when I started working down there with all white men who owned the maintenance crew and, of course, a white lady who was in the office. But I, I just remember how there was a, a tone of the word, the N-word, being used frequently. But now that I was down there, you know, when they were in the shop, you know, you can say it because they were the only ones down there. They would all get ready to say the word and have to remember that, oh, we have a black guy here with us now, so we can't use that word any longer. So I, I can't tell you the number of times that they were about to say the N-word. And then they had to remember, oh, we have a black guy in here. And this is 1998. And so eventually, you know, that kind of waned out. And they were, uh, after several months working with me, I didn't have to deal with that much anymore. However, I noticed that when we were had to do work orders for the various clinics or in Kirkland, I noticed that the boss oftentimes would, you know, if we had work orders to do, and there were black managers and white managers in the facility. And I noticed that the bosses were given priority to the white managers to get the work orders out. And so, you know, I was taught when they were training me, okay, just take care of the priority work orders. Let's see if there's something that's dire, you know, if there's surgery or whatever the case, you know, make sure you go ahead and get those out. But if it's not, not a dire need, then what you do is you just take the work orders by, you know, as they came in. And so I noticed that more often than not that the work orders for the black managers were being pushed to the bottom. 
And uh, I just kind of did an individual protest to say to the boss that, you know, I don't think what we're doing is fast. It frustrates me when you have me to go up and take care of this work order for this white manager when the work order for the black manager came in first. And I said, you've done that too many times. And I said, so I'm an African-American. And so I, I can't take you mistreating, even though that person may not ever know what you did. But I know it. And I'm black. And I so I would wish that I would hope that you all would be fair about this. And let's take the work orders in the manner that you told me that they would be done. And so I did uh, have an opportunity to speak up there, and the boss uh, did take under consideration and, and what I said, and, and, and that kind of nipped that problem in the bud. Back to 2003, uh, with our, my uh, mission trip down in Belize, I was staggered by something that I saw there. So me being one of two African-American students with, with a group of white people, our hosts were black people there in Belize. Well, the students that were with me, most of them had been on campus with me for a couple of years, most of which didn't even know my name. You know, rarely spoke to me, and, and I'm a very, you know, outgoing person. I speak to everybody. But, you know, students would pass would even speak to me. Sat in class, we rarely, rarely spoke to me. We were there for those two weeks in Belize, working at this church in Bama Pond there, and all of these little black kids who looked just like me. We were there doing vacation Bible schools, and these white students, they were loving on those little black, black kids. They were hugging them and just being so cordial and kind to them. The last night before we left, our missionary professor, he said, you know what, well, let's kind of talk about some things that have transpired over the last couple of weeks, and let's just kind of have recap what's going on. And so, aside of the positive things that have taken place, I said, but you know, there's, there's just a thing that is lingering in my mind. I've got to get it off my chest. I said, but you know, it bothers me that most of you guys who are with me, you all don't even acknowledge my presence on the campus. But there were very few African-Americans on this. I think it was 20-something of us on that campus. But for me to see you guys loving on these little black kids and Hispanic kids and what have you, you all are loving on them. You all are treating them like royalty and like they're the most precious thing ever. And then and you don't even see me. I see even more than that is that, that the situation that you see here in Belize in Central America is right in your backyard in Birmingham, Alabama, in Bessemer, Alabama, where I live. There's poverty all around you. And people that look like these people, and you not, don't even make an effort to even reach out. And so, I, so I'm, I'm troubled by that, being a Christian, us being Christians. How is it that we as Christians, we would have no concern about each other? And again, I, I was baffled by that. Think about other situations. Um, maybe even I come to 2008 presidential election. President Obama is up for election over against John McCain on the Republican side, Obama Democratic nominee. And I remember being a student my second year at Decent Divinity School at that time, working on my MD. And I just remember the times, I think, Christian, you were there as well. And I just remember just being in the hallways with fellow uh, students. Um, and, and I remember white guys just standing right there in my face laughing and making mockery about the possibility of an African-American being the president of the United States. I mean, it, in this Christian community. And so I'm, I'm just, you know, torn by this, but I, but I didn't say a thing. I just, you know, allowed the talk to go on. So I should never forget the day after President Obama was elected. I was there on the campus at the Divinity School. And what I'm about to tell you is really true. I walked on that campus and I began to look in the faces of young white students, male students in particular. See the anger and the fire in their eyes. One particular professor of that day later on, like in my afternoon class, Dr. Doug Webster, as a matter of fact, he saw the tension, he, he felt it, and, and so he took on the challenge of being bold enough to have a conversation piece about it. 
Only thing about that is I was the only African-American student in that class that day. So he just kind of opened up and allowed the students to kind of freely express themselves. And for 30, 40 minutes, uh, I just listened to white male after white male express his frustration that countries around the world celebrating and so forth and so on. And I sat there listening and I was just getting angry and angrier about the minute, but I just didn't say a word. Uh, and then Dr. Webster turned to me and he said, Calvin, so what do you have to say about it? What do you think about all of this? And at that moment, I opened my mouth and said, you know, it really hurts me as I listen to all of you guys. As you know, President Obama is the 44th president of the United States. All of the presidents before him were white presidents. For the first time in the history of our nation, there's a president who's in the office who looks like me. And you are angry about that. And for me, you know, it's something to celebrate. I'm excited. And I think other countries around the world, as you've seen them celebrate, you're seeing them celebrate because for them, uh, it said there's a possibility where there are injustices and what have you in their respective countries. This is telling us that progress is on the way. That if America's elected a black president with this history of racism and so forth and so on, this is a great thing. So and then I went on to say to my fellow students and Dr. Webster that I feel like I'm being punished for being excited for seeing a person in the president's office who looks like me. When Dr. Webster, whenever he sees me, he often reminds me of that conversation of, he said, but your words kind of still, it was the, the defining moments of that discussion uh, in that room that day. It frustrated me to see that level of frustration with a young white man. Uh, because a black man had, had sent him into the president's office. As I think about uh, how do I respond to racism in situations where I, when I had to deal with overt racism and what I've learned to do as any African-American person is that I just I always take just a general approach. I, I always seek to, to kind of understand where that person is coming from. What's their frame of reference? You know, Dr. King uh, was giving a speech uh, on one event uh, in the 60s, and uh, there was a white man who walked up on the stage and slapped Dr. King while he was giving his speech. He was speaking to this audience of nonviolent protesters. And when this white man walked up on the stage and slapped him, this group of nonviolent people, they all of a sudden changed from being nonviolent to ready to lynch that man. They said, in effect, let us take him out back and let us do to him what they've been doing to us for nearly 400 years. And Dr. King was able to calm the crowd only by saying to them, what if you live in a household where your parents told you that black people were animals? What if the neighbors that you live by share that same mindset, the kids that you play with, their parents share those same views? What if when you went to church, the pastor and the church members shared those views? What if when you went to school, that same view was shared? You went off to college and your same views are shared. So how would you be any different from this man if you were raised in that kind of context? And so what Dr. King, in essence, was lifted to them is he lifted Proverbs 4, I think it's seven. Wisdom is a principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. But in all you're getting, get understanding. And so what he did to calm that nonviolent crowd, who had, the way he steeled them and moved them from mobism to uh, being nonviolent again, is that he carried them or ushered them into that man's world. And so the lingering question on every one of those people in the audience's mind is, would I be any different from this man had I been exposed to the same kind of environment? And so... How do I respond? I respond kind of with Martin Luther King. I'm always thinking in that context to say, I don't know this person's background. I don't know what led this person to feel uh, the way they feel or to have a, a hate or indifference toward me. So there's got to be a reason, whatever the case, I'm going to be called and I'm going to show Christ uh, in whatever the situation. Well, what, what am I teaching the next generation? Well, I'm teaching the next generation just what I told you and that, that kind of mantra from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you, Dr. Bell. Uh, Dr. Moss, 
how the racism and racial insensitivity and racial injustice affected me in a tremendous way. I am, as an adult, angry. I am angry with a question attached to it. How dare you? And and I'm speaking that because sometime in life, if you are privileged or you think you're privileged, you do not put much thought to racism. If I'm in an environment where I'm not affected, I went to an all-black school, I wasn't affected by racism. Of course, I had to deal with it with my grandchildren and began to help them understand some things. But when I attended seminary, I saw so much racism. I was juxtaposed between sexism and racism. So I was trying to deal with all of that at one time. And the way it affected me, it caused me to, when I look at God and theology, and I was in seminary because I wanted to learn. It was a predominantly white seminary, but I was so determined to get what I came to get that I put up with being ignored as long as I got my information that I thought I needed because I had my own view of God. But the racism under the umbrella of a seminary, it was just unreal. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, if a person show you who they are, believe them. And I got to see theologians, doctors, PhDs who were just downright racist, but yet they opened the word of God, the scripture and interpreted but they interpreted with slanted lens that left me out, black and woman. And I struggled for a while with, are you okay, Mary? And I had to come back and get my own grounding because I understood that God made us and created us in his image. And I couldn't see where these good white boys down at the seminary made the split because what it lent itself to was superiority. And they truly felt and feel. That's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing right now. That hadn't gone anywhere. And it's systemic. It's been there a long time. The schools that we're trying to enter never really looked at. Southern Baptists, for instance, considered the black man as three-fifths of a man. Now, I've heard all the stories why, but he still reduced the black man. So much so that that has systemic impact that's affecting the whole role of the black man and ultimately the black pastor. Because what happens is God is removed out of who God is. So how did it affect me? Even that way as it affected the black man and his role in, how, in, in his home and his church and et cetera. So uh, racism has a haunting effect on me, so much so that I became, I am suspicious of white folk. I don't care how much they hug me, and I'm, I am suspicious of all these good white folk who are missionary, but their hearts are dark. I heard my brother Bell talk about the kids in Belize and, and, and the kids here, and, and I stretch minds even further. I'm angry. Because in my congregation, even though I have white members, I'm predominantly black. But a lot of our black members are sitting in white churches who are getting the benefit of financial support 
And they don't even like black folk. And I can tell you why. They do not sit in the hierarchy of decision making. And whenever it, it is, it becomes then blaring racism. You can sit, I let one of you in, but really, even if you have a suggestion, it would never hit policy book. It would never hit procedure book. And you'll always get, thank you, brother. White folk cause me to define for my church mission as Jesus intended mission, who happened to be a black man. Mission for white folk, as I perceive it, is helping the poor little black folk. And in helping the poor little black folk, God is pleased with my effort. And so it infuriates me what I hear, what I see, and what's being perpetrated through seminaries in particularly. Because then what we don't realize, what we are taught in seminary, especially with the African-American men, is brought back and perpetrated within the church and ultimately among the general membership. How do I respond when I encounter racism with others? I have two approaches. Some ways I'm just downright crazy. And at other times, I'm just as sweet and loving as Jesus would want me to be. As sweet and loving as he is, he threw tables. And as sweet and loving as Jesus is, he spoke truth to power. In fact, my sermon for Sunday has to do with speaking truth to power. Because I have ears that need to hear truth and not what has been passed down to them by hearts that have never changed. Something that someone shared with me and I've held it because I found this to be true, that a mind changed against its will remains the same still. And that's where I have races. Of course, there are many hurdles to discuss when it comes to overcoming and overturning racism in our society. But if I could ask each of you to name one that's really at the forefront of your mind, uh, that's important for all of our listeners to be thinking about as we address problems of racism and racial injustice in the society today, what one hurdle would you want to get on people's minds? In order to correct a problem, you have to identify that you have a problem or there is a problem. To the extent that all of us are in the business of educating others, um, I think it's imperative that we sensitize ourselves to our commonalities, but also our unique differences. That those of us who are in the pastoral ministry who are going to these seminaries that are teaching from predominantly Eurocentric perspective are going to get this, just that. And until these seminaries recognize the fact that different cultures here in America and different folk in our, our churches are segregated and continue to be segregated. And so there has to be some repentance. First, you got to acknowledge that there is a problem and that systemic racism still exists. So when we begin to identify that there is still a problem, then we can have some corrections. Dr. Bell, I wonder if I could call on you next. My, the hurdle I think about is white privilege. We are still partially sheltered in as a result of COVID-19. Our country was shut down. All of a sudden, it started to be noised about and 
main majority of white communities that the specialists and the, the, the medical professions or what have you start saying, okay, the majority of the patients that we're seeing dying from COVID-19 are African-American. And so, and then, you know, you started, that news just kind of spread it out and people started looking back. And so some of my white friends, uh, pastors and what have you said, you know, in their communities, question was mainly asked, well, you know anybody that has COVID-19? You know, answer was constantly, no, 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 no. And so it seems like that once it was learned that, okay, the majority of the people who are dying as a result of COVID-19 are African-Americans, that we started seeing just droves of white people at capitals in all around the nation, some with guns and others protesting, reopen the nation, reopen the nation. For me and for people in my community, we were, we were stunned and say, are you serious? Think about the, the recent events with the murders of these young African-American people by police officers. Well, that's kind of in miniature as, as it relates to COVID-19 and the amount, a number of African-American people that are dying. Well, so, so the economy is the driving force. So we, we can live with old white people dying from COVID-19. Black people are going to die. And then their Hispanics all seem like their numbers are up too. They're dying. So, hey, so be it. Then let's count it as loss and let's go back to work. Uh, knowing that many of the, the jobs black people and, and other privileged people are working in are, are factories and plants and things where people are having to work in close proximity, restaurants and things of that nature. Uh, and so for me, uh, and the greatest hurdle to overcome is white privilege. It's those who are in power, those who are used to having all of the, the privileges that America promised even as it, from, from its inception, till that group, and specifically, more pointedly, white privileged Christians until their minds get to a place to say, okay, people are more important than our comfort. Pastor Thomas Beavers, what do you see as the greatest hurdles to combating racism today? I think one of the biggest hurdles is silence, Um, white silence and the silence of even black people who are privileged, who are not affected directly by racism. My whole message has been that the Pledge of Allegiance will never become a reality without the Black Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice. And so we say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Oftentimes, when we see injustices in society, It is the voice of the black people that is lifted against the injustice. It is the voice of the oppressed that is lifted against the injustice, the voice of the marginalized that is lifted against the injustice and nothing changes. The states are still not united. We're not one nation under God. And there's liberty and justice for some, but not all. It is not until every voice is lifted. Uh, the black voice and the white voice, the privileged and those that are non-privileged, when we begin to lift our voices together and cry out uh, against injustices of society, uh, that we will begin to see change start to take place. One of the hurdles to lifting our voice is that that comes with a cost. And, uh, and so the way that people try to get around the cost of lifting your voice, we speak up to God in prayer, but we don't speak out to the world against injustice. And there's an extreme difference. You don't get off the hook just because you pray about it. Um, I think that prayer is needed. Matter of fact, I know that prayer is needed. That's a vital part, but that's only half the story. Speaking up to God in prayer ought to lead us to speak out to the world against injustice. And speaking up to God in prayer is safe. Speaking out to the world against injustice is unsafe because when the world hears what you really think about injustice and what you really believe about injustice, uh, you can prepare yourself to lose some friends and prepare yourself to lose some relationships. So I'm challenging all white people, 
I'm challenging all privileged black people who are not affected directly by the injustices of society. Start to lift your voice. And when you lift your voice, do not be afraid to say black lives matter. We never said that black lives matter only. We said that black lives matter. We know that all lives matter. We just need help with black lives because black lives are the ones that are in danger at this particular moment in time. And all lives don't matter if black lives don't matter because black lives are a part of all lives. If we were in the Jewish Holocaust, the hashtag would not be black lives matter. It would be Jewish lives matter. Uh, but it seems that you know every other day it's a black person that is unarmed, that is being killed at the hands of a white police officer. And since black lives are endangered, we cannot be afraid to cry out against injustice. And we cannot be afraid to articulate in our circles and our spheres of influence that black lives matter. And until every voice is lifted, we won't see change take place. So the biggest hurdle is silence. Amen. Very wise words. You have been listening to Dr. Thomas Beavers, Dr. Mary Moss, Dr. Calvin Bell, and Dr. Patricia Outlaw, all friends and alumni of Beeson Divinity School who are here with us in a series of three podcast interviews talking about the challenges of race and racial injustice in our society and in our churches. Uh, we hope the Lord has spoken to you in this podcast episode. We also hope you'll tune in again next week as we bring the conversation all the way up into the present in our churches and talk about the challenge of pastoral ministry in the midst of the current racial crisis. Thank you very much for being with us. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.